everyone. My name's Anna, and as Justin said, I'll be reading to you from God's Word tonight, um, starting from Job 29, verse 1, and I will just be reading through um, the breaks, so just follow along until we get to Romans. Job continued his discourse. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through the darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil, when I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside and the old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. Whoever heard me, heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, because I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist them. People listened to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. They waited for me, as for showers, and drank in my words as the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king amongst his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. But now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. For what is our lot from God above, our heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? If I have walked with falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then my other, may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I, if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, and may other men sleep with her, for that would have been wicked, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction, it would have uprooted my harvest. If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless. But from my youth, I reared them as a father would, and from my birth, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. 
If I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these would also be sins to be judged for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. If I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against their life. If those of my household have never said, who has not been filled with Job's meat, but no stranger had to spend the night in the street for my door was always open to the traveler. If I have concealed my sin as people do by hiding my guilt in my heart because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. Oh, that someone had, that, oh, I, bleh, sorry. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I now sign my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would, be pre I would present it to him as to a ruler. If my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. And then Romans chapter 8, 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Anna. Um, three things before we start. Firstly, uh, got a fair amount to cover today, fair warning. I hope it's going to be valuable, but uh, lots to cover. Secondly, uh, if any of this is painful for you, then please um, do not feel compelled to stay, of course. Uh, there used to be sort of dividers up the pews where the aisles are so that you couldn't actually get out the sides. You know, we spent 10 grand getting rid of them so you could leave when you wanted to. You're not trapped in, so don't feel compelled. Uh, and we'd love to pray with you. Uh, and Emma and I and perhaps the Hughes's would love to pray with you up the back if there's anything that you'd like to pray for. That's secondly. Firstly, Mount to cover. Secondly, if anything triggers, please, please don't feel compelled. And thirdly, it's a real world. I'm denied about sharing this with you because I just picked it up outside two minutes ago. It's a cup, a coffee cup lid, and uh, you can't see it here on the live stream. You can't read it, I presume. Don't want you to read it, really. But uh, a man has been leaving a coffee cup like this. We know it's a man because we've met him once for about eight years. So uh, regularly on Sundays I come in, I pick up the coffee cup, I pop it in the bin, and I pray for him. It says something different every time, but it's the same motif. Namely, I hate life, and I hate God. Look, I'm pretty sure there are mental health issues involved. The fact that he leaves it there, like almost every week, makes me believe that there's some, I'm not a psychologist, but something OCD in it. But at the same time, a lot of pain. And uh, on the inside, and this is why I'm balking at saying it, 
On the inside it says SHIT universe, it's a rubbish universe, and SHIT you all. And on the back side it just says stuff God, but it uses the F word rather than, rather than stuff. And he just leaves that lid there. <laughs> um, there's a lot of pain in that coffee cup, and we don't know him. Just met him once about seven or eight years ago. But I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to make a point, actually, about what's on the top of the lid at one point, because I think it illustrates it perfectly. Would you pray? Would you, do you want to, want to pray for this gentleman? Let's pray. We know he's a taxi driver. Father, we here now pray for the man who left this lid and uh, all the lids he's left over seven or eight years here at St. Philip's. I know of no other church he leaves it at. And uh, he's right now potentially driving a taxi and or we don't know where he is, but I pray that right now you'd be with him. We thank you that you're the kind of God that when you receive the words that are on the top of this cup, that instead of what I can know of you, you reach, you look at that with compassion. Um, we pray that you'd heal his heart. Um, even now, as we pray, as the group here prays, and those heal his heart. And Father, for those of us suffering, we may not be able to trace your hand in the suffering, but we trust your heart. So speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, how are we doing? Are we all right? Is it okay to say? It's real. Okay. You should all know the story of Job so far, but in case you're a newbie, welcome. The book of Job is a very ancient and wonderful book of the Old Testament about Job and his four friends whom he calls worthless physicians. That is, they came to heal and they left a bloody mess. Job, we find out in chapter 1, verse 1, is a good man who, we're told, fears God and shuns evil and yet he loses everything in a tsunami of pain and he doesn't know why, so he sits down in dust and ashes. He sees no rhyme, no reason, no method in the madness. It's like the book is him and his four friends sitting down at a table with the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle of Job's life. And Job basically says, the pieces don't fit. They don't fit together. It's a faulty puzzle. And the friends say, yes, it fits if you make them. You've got to make them fit. The reader, that's us, we know something that Job never finds out, which is that he suffers for a very specific reason, presumably a unique one, that this is a test of some kind to see if Job fears God for the things, for the pleasures, the hedge around him. Take away the hedge, says the Satan, the accuser, and he'll do what almost everybody does. He'll get sad, he'll curve in on himself, he'll curse God and die. He'll say, stuff God, something like that. The book begs the question, of course, would your faith survive if everything was taken away from you? Everything. 
Well, Job doesn't give up on God. Uh, He's a model in many ways of one foot in front of the other. Instead, he argues, he wrestles, he complains. This book, by the way, is not for those who don't believe in God. This book is for those who believe in God and suffer. And the reason why it's for you is because you believe that God is good, and therefore you believe that the universe is or should be just and moral. But because Job is not just about patience in suffering and empathy for those who are, which will be true for everybody, Job doesn't work like that. It's for those who believe in God and particular things about God. You, then, are not with Richard Dawkins, who famously wrote in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, like Job. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe, he writes, that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares, DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That's not you. You believe at the bottom there is a God, and therefore there is justice. You believe there is rhyme and reason and method in the madness. You believe that there's a divine musical score, even if it screeches from time to time. In Job's final words, after much time and many arguments, Job then blurts out from the depths of his heart, Job 31, verse 35. I wonder if you could say this to God. He says, oh, that someone would hear me. Oh, that someone would hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser, God, put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as a ruler. Then verse 40, the words of Job are ended. Here endeth his lesson. He rests his case. He's done. Elihu will speak next, and then God will appear out of the storm. But right here, this is Job trying to sue God. He's wrong. It's going to sue him. It's man versus God. In chapter 28 of Job, we read that beautiful chapter about wisdom being like precious rubies, and human beings will go searching for gems. They'll go searching for silver. Why shouldn't we go searching for wisdom? And so we spoke about this at the beginning of the year. We want to salt the flinty rock with our hands. We want to get below the mountains and tunnel through the rock and find wisdom. That's chapter 28. 29 is our text today, and these are Job's final words where he gives us a glimpse wisdom, really, into four topics. If you're going to dig deep, here it is. Number one, we get a glimpse into the psychology of grief. Secondly, the shape of a just life, from chapter 29. Thirdly, the theology of suffering, I want to give you a glimpse there. And fourthly, the basis for the divine challenge in chapter 31. And this is all in your outline, if you're following along. And really, I'm just touching in on these. As I say, there's a lot of ground to cover And uh, you might want to write notes if that helps you. Firstly, the psychology of grief. One of the gifts of the Bible is that you gain an inner glimpse of the soul without rest. 
You get it here, you get it in the Psalms, you get it in the prophets, you get it in Paul, you get it in Jesus. Now, I'm not a psychologist, and there are psychologists in the room. I'm neither a psychologist nor the son of one. I really do not want to speak above my pay grade. That said, I know the suke, I know the soul, the inner life, I have one. I too am human. Back in Job 3, verse 25, Job says, What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. Who doesn't know that psychological experience? I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. People who say that book appointments. The book of Job, and indeed Job himself, validates your inner struggle by showing you some stages in grief. The notion of build a bridge and get over it is therefore silly. There is maturity in these words, even if Job comes close to the edge. And in these three chapters, you get a memory of the past. Oh, how good it was. Chapter 29. Which adds salt to the wound of the present. You get a lament in chapter 30. And then you get, effectively, bargaining with God, a divine challenge in chapter 31. So let's break those apart. First, memory. Job says, once I had dignity, which by the way would make a great title for the movie about his life. Once I had dignity. 29 verse 1, Job continued his discourse, how I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Gosh, it was wonderful in those early days at university when I first understood the gospel, <laughs> and all those friends gathered around, arguing about theology. How I long for those days. He's doing what you and I might do, yearning for former days when I felt close to God. 29 verse 4, oh, for the days when I was in my prime. Anyone here say that? When God's intimate friendship blessed my home, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, but now they're dead. He remembers when he was a respected man about the city, 29 verse 7, when I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside. The old men rose to their feet. Verse 11, whoever heard me spoke well of me, but now I'm, you know, you could say I have relevance deprivation. They don't care. He remembers when he felt invincible. 29 verse 18, I thought I shall die in my own house. <laughs> My days as numerous as the grains of sand. 29 verse 20, my glory will not fade, I said. The bow will never, will ever be new in my hand. I felt invincible. People thought I was wise. 29 verse 21, people listened to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. In fact, I love this, verses 23 and 24, I even made them feel special. Just by looking at them, they waited for me as for showers, 
and drank in my words as the spring rain. I was refreshing to people. When I smiled at people, they scarcely could believe it. The light of my face was precious to them. Ever meet anybody like that? That's Job. Now, all of that closing your eyes and remembering the past is in the end salt to the wound of the present. I had dignity, now I lost it. 30 verse 1, but now they mock me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. <laughs> I don't, you know, it's cultural there. I don't think his point is to mock the fathers, just to point out that the lowest of people, the sons of the lowest of people, are now the ones mocking me. 30 verse 9, and now those young men mock me in song. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit on my face as I walk past. The lament here is beautiful and honest. It's not printed here, but in 30 verse 26, yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened. At first I thought that might meant something like the black dog within, but I think it just means his skin is so foul. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I've become the brother of jackals, a companion of ours. I stay awake all night. This lament leads to bargaining and a divine challenge in 30 verse 20. I cry out to you, God, but you don't answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You don't do anything. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me, he says to God. You snatch me up, you drive me before the wind, and you toss me about in the storm. A man says to God. And since you've done this, chapter 31, I'm going to lay down the gauntlet. I'm going to force God to speak with oaths, 19 oaths. And those are where you say something like this, I promise this is true, and to show you that I promise it's true, this could happen if I'm telling a lie. 19 times, if I've done that, then do this. If I've done that, then do this. Look at 31 verse 5, he says, If I've walked with falsehood, or my foot had hurried after the seat, let God weigh me in honor scales, and he will know that I'm blameless. Right? He's saying... Um, Nothing that I've done is, is icackable. If there was a divine icack, I'd walk out innocently. A divine icack. And you just want a federal one. God, you know me, says Job to God. Now he prayed this prayer long before it was written, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. And then you get the pattern, the oaths. God, if I've done X, a sin, then God, you should go ahead and do Y, a punishment to, towards his person. And the implication really is, I'm telling the truth, I've not done X, I've not done the sin. You know me, God. Therefore, I don't deserve the suffering that I've got, or at least that's the way my friends have framed it. And you can see it in verse 7. If my steps had, have turned from the path, if my heart 
has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. He says, God, you could even look at my sexual desires and my relationship with my wife. 31 verse 9, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, I don't have to do it, I just have to head over there. If I've done any of that, then may my wife grind another man's grain. In other words, she'll run at my infidelity, if I've been unfaithful, but I haven't, because that would have been wicked, verse 11, for me to do that, a sin to be judged, but that's not me. And it's not just classic ideas of, you know, relationships and purity, but acts of justice and mercy too. 31 verse 13, if I have denied justice to any of my servants, what will I do when God confronts me? I'll have nothing to say. Plus greed and idolatry. 31 verse 24, if I've put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security, if I have rejoiced over my great wealth, then these would also be sins to be judged. For I would have been unfaithful to God on high to put my trust in gold. That's not me. And he says, I don't have any schadenfreude either. If I have rejoiced over my enemy's misfortune, 31 verse 29, or if I have gloated over the trouble that came to him, if I laughed when he fell, and no secret sins to speak of, verse 33, if I've concealed my sin as people do by hiding guilt in my heart because I feared the crowd, or is that the politician's one? Maybe it's all of us. There's even the sense of appropriate environmentalism as well. 31 verse 38, if my land cries out against me, and if I have devoured its yield without payment, right, I've exhausted the land without tending to the land, then let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley, the words of Job are ended. See, Job is saying, God, show me the solid line between the suffering I'm experiencing and the sin my friends say I've committed. I can't see it. It's not there. If you can show it to me, I'll cop it. Show me the links. Show me how the pieces of the puzzle fit. Hence this cry from his heart in 31 verse 35, oh, that someone would hear me. I now sign my defense. Literally, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. I'm writing it down. I'm writing it down. Oh, the psychology, right? What a model for us in times of trouble before God. You can pray such prayers in agony. The psalmist did. Jesus did. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Okay, firstly, the second two points are much quicker. Secondly, the shape of a just life is right there in chapter 29. These chapters form the foundation for Dr. Tim Keller's book called Generous Justice, How to Live a Just Life, and for good reason. Chapter 29 outlines what fearing God and shunning evil looks like. Up until this point, we just believe it's true. God said it, the narrator said it, we take it on faith. But what does it mean? What does it look like to fear God and shun evil? Now, these are Job's words, said in pain. And his friends, by the way, don't like him saying it. Wait till we get to Elihu in two weeks' time after our break. But if you look closely at these chapters, you start to see the shape 
of what a life would look like if it was justly led. You see these remarkable heart actions. I'll give you some examples. You'll see actions towards the poor and the fatherless. 29 verse 12, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. It's one of the reasons we uh, do our city care lunch and build trust with that community and are moving steps forward in that space. You'll see in these chapters the idea of visiting those who are dying, prioritising for them. 29 verse 13, the one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. You'll see care for those with disability. 29 verse 15, I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, I was a father to the needy, and I took up the cause of the stranger with actions in court. He says here, I had actions in court. I didn't use them inappropriately, but 29 verse 17, I broke the fangs of the wicked uh, who oppressed the needy, the blind and the lame and the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. For those who know the international justice mission, I do wonder whether they ought to have 29 verses 16 and 17 as their primary verse. And look, thousands of years ago, you get the basis of such acts of justice, namely that God has made us all in his image. All of us were born of one mother. All of us will die. Naked we came from my mother's womb. Naked we shall return, no matter what happens in life. All equally important to God. 31 verse 13, if I have denied justice to any of my servants, what will I do when God confronts me? I'll have no words. 31 verse 15, did not he who made me in the womb make the slave as well? Did not the same one form both of us within our mothers? You can see how the trajectory of the whole Bible lends itself towards emancipation of slaves. But lest you think that it's only acts of justice uh, and that somehow God doesn't care who you sleep with or what porn you watch, 31 verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully at a young person, young woman here. Covenant Eyes, of course, is the name of the uh, accountability website coming out of the United States. comes right out of this verse. I, made a, I, I, looked, I looked at my eyes and I made a promise with them that I wouldn't look lustfully. For what is our lot from God above, our heritage from the Almighty on high, is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? God cares about what you do. Not just justice, but personal piety. God is not from the left or the right. He's from above. He cares about it all. The pursuit of holiness and the care of the poor matters. Thirdly, I've not said this yet during the series, but the book offers a remarkable glimpse, tunnel wisdom into a theology of suffering. And there's nuance going on in this book that I just want to raise with you. We might have time for one or two questions afterwards. You could ask me about this afterwards if you like. Let's talk about the friends who come to him, trying to make the puzzle fit. 
The prologue to this book in the 1560 Geneva Bible says this, these friends came unto him under pretense of consolation, comfort, and yet they tormented him more than did all his affliction. You know that because at the end of chapter 3, he doesn't curse God and die. He says, this is really hard, but all the hoo-ha comes from the friends. And that's because the friends have a neat grasp of God, and it's too neat. Job, if you're experiencing this kind of suffering, it must have meant that you've sinned in that way. So just, you know, find out what the sin is and repent of it. That's how the puzzle works, they said. But they're wrong. The reader knows they're wrong because they don't know what you know from chapters 1 and 2. They needed humility about the revelation of God. Get last week's talks if you want to explore that idea. But they become worthless physicians, come to heal, bloody mess. One writer says this, explanations exist. They've existed for all time. There is always a well-known solution to every human problem, neat, plausible, and wrong. Neat, plausible, and wrong. But here's the thing, in the end, while friends are important, it can't just be about your friends, and who's caring for you, and who's not caring for you. You will go round in circles if all you're thinking about is the way people are treating you. You will just go round and round and round in circles. And you go to another friend and you say, this friend said that, and this friend did that, and why did they say this? In the end, what Job does is he's honest with his friends, but in the end he needs God. You'll have to go to God when you suffer, not primarily your friends, although we're here for you. And not even to the cause of your suffering, Job 1 and 2 are ancient but profound. Why? Because in these chapters you get this very nuanced little picture of innocent suffering. That is, it's the Satan that makes the claim that Job only fears God for the hedge, for the things. God says, okay, you can take away the hedge. God says that twice. You can, you can, you can do something. But each time Satan goes away to do it. And so you get this extraordinary nuance whereby God doesn't have his hand on the smoking gun because he never touched the gun in this innocent suffering. And yet, the way the book functions is, you have to go to God and say, why did you do that? That's lovely. It means that God's hands aren't behind the hands of the terrorist who beheads someone on the streets of London. God's hands aren't there doing it. And yet, at the same time, God is in charge. And so, you're going to need to go to God. It's a lovely nuance outlined in this very ancient book of Job. So, no matter what, go to God. Go to Him and not to Satan. Don't get, to some extent, leave Satan out of the picture. The rest of the book of Job does. St. James says, resist Satan and he will flee from you. But in the end, all suffering means that your attention will need to go to God there's something profoundly smart about my friend outside. As sad as it is. Listen to Walter Brueggemann on the Psalms. Listen to him. These Psalms of lament make the important connection, everything must be brought to speech, and everything brought to speech must be addressed to God, who is the final reference for all of life. It's why, by the way, so many people are trying to squash God out of their life he keeps bubbling up. 
Because in the end, every human being has to deal with God when it comes to disappointment. And so the Apostle Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. You'll see that in a couple of weeks' time, that He may lift you up out of your dust and ashes in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him. That's what Job's doing here, even if he's coming close to the edge, because He cares for you, and I think deep down, Job knows it. That's his battle. And you won't be able to blame God too. God holds no smoking gun precisely because he never pulled the trigger. He doesn't send these calamities on this innocent one. He's not cruel like Richard Dawkins' universe appears to be. He's good, you can go to him. Which leads me fourth and finally to the basis of his divine challenge. Do you know what the basis is? Norman Habel wrote this, periodically each one of us likes to play to look for the whimsical in the world. But there is very little humour, frolic or serendipity in Job. His cries are deadly serious, yet the close of Job's final speech has a touch of humour, ironic though it may be. Where's the humour? It's in 31 verse 15, Let my accuser, God, put his problem with me, his statement about me, in writing, and surely I would wear it on my shoulder, I would put his indictment on like, you've got to look up for a moment, I put it on to me like a crown. That's what I do. Like a prince, I will approach him. I've heard it all, says Job. The pieces don't fit. We're missing something. (laughs) The reader knows they're missing something. If God came and put his charge against me, I'd wear it like a paper hat, like a prince. I would approach him. I hear now, rest my case. I want my day in court. The basis for such a bold prayer is the grace of God. You won't find this in the Quran, not with inshallah, He knows you, he cares for you, he sees your writing, he knows your pain, he knows you are in the dust and the ashes. And in the end, this kind of prayer, where are you, God, offered in faith, well, God accepts that prayer. I mean, Job went to God, didn't grumble behind his back, In chapter 41, God will say of Job that he has spoken the truth about me, even if he came close to the edge. He hadn't sinned, not even by these words. There was no reason for his suffering that he could see, but he stayed standing in the end. So Job's final speech gives us four gifts. Number one, your emotions are validated. Be honest. Beautiful. Secondly, your life, your deeds have been noticed. God knows how you act towards people who are vulnerable. Be just. Third, your God is good. Don't avoid him. Run to him. And lastly, and most importantly, he has come to you as a mediator. The very thing Job cried out for. Jesus lived a fully just and obedient life, the true and better Job. Jesus came to 
the dust and the ashes. He was buried in a tomb for my sin. He came to the dust and ashes of my death, my sin, and he lifted me out again so that I would no longer need to be the kind of person in pain who would need to sue God as honest as my prayers should be. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. He vindicates. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Let's pray. Father, the reader of Job gets a glimpse into heaven in chapters 1 and 2 and something very specific happened then which resulted in something very painful for Job but it also resulted in this beautiful book uh, that we can read and learn to, to validate our emotions, to be honest with you, to seek a just life, to cry out to you. And yet there's a better heaven, uh, well, the same heaven, but there's a better glimpse uh, of heaven, namely that Jesus Christ, who died my death and uh, lifted me up out of my dust and ashes, lifted me up out of my sin and raised me from the dead, he himself was raised and seated at the right hand of the Father so that we now know and can claim that you are good, you are loving, you are kind, you are full of grace. And while there may be so many things in life that we don't know, we can't trace your hand, we don't know why you've done the things you've done, and yet we trust you. Like Job was able to trust you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.